Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. The National School Lunch Program serves approximately 4.9 billion meals a year to children nationwide, and for many of those recipients, it's their only source of nutrition. And yet, According to a new book by Jennifer Gaddis, the program is chronically underfunded, causing a litany of problems that threaten the health and mental well-being of students and the people who serve them. In The Labor of Lunch, Gaddis takes a deep dive into the development and evolution of the National School Lunch Program in the U.S., which is expected to operate as a financially self-sustaining business, unlike other aspects of public school that are paid for by taxpayers as a shared investment in the future. This model, which Gaddis argues was never ideal, has forced many schools to prioritize the cost of food over quality. In her book, and in this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, Gaddis explains how this decision negatively impacts the health of children, strains cafeteria workers, and reinforces socioeconomic discrimination that in turn further restricts program funding and creates a, quote, trap of cheapness. She also outlines several potential solutions, which she calls on legislators, schools, parents, and the food and beverage industry to enact to not only improve the quality of food offered in the National School Lunch Program, but also the long-term health of children and the quality of life for those who serve them. As Gaddis explains in her book, The Labor of Lunch, the roots of the National School Lunch Program are grounded in good intentions, to provide nutrition to children and bolster the macroeconomics of farming. However, she adds that these good intentions have paved the way for unintended negative consequences. Most people will tell you that the National School Lunch Program started in 1946, and it was really created to serve two purposes. One is to safeguard the health and well-being of the nation's children by providing nonprofit school lunches made with nutritious foods. And then the other purpose is to basically provide an outlet for commodity foods that the U.S. government needs to support um, in some way or another. So sometimes it's particular commodity crops that they want to invest in, and other times it's particular um, food products that maybe need to be removed um, from the market in order to help stabilize costs. So it was sort of intended to be both a nutrition program for children um, to provide affordable, um, if not free meals um, for children, and then to kind of help with the um, macroeconomics of farming. Um, But I will tell you that the National School Lunch Program actually has roots that extend um, much deeper into history. So the first nonprofit school lunch programs in the U.S. started in the 1890s. And those are really the creation of a lot of women um, who were coming together who really had um, this recognition that there was a need for kids in schools to have access to pure food. So they were really concerned about food safety. They were also concerned about nutrition And they were concerned about, in particular, poor children not having access to high-quality food. And they also recognized that a lot of middle-class women at that point in time were having a hard time figuring out, like, well, how do we actually send our kids to school with meals that are going to, like, last and be good by lunchtime because, you know, they didn't have the same kinds of containers or materials that we have now to help with food preservation. So I think there was this real push to recognize that there were 
um, kind of a number of reasons why it might be good to create a school lunch program that would be offered at the school building itself instead of relying on um, people to bring their own food or to purchase food from like street vendors or things like that. Since the program launched, Gaddis notes it's expanded to 95% of public schools and serves about 30 million children daily, while most of those come from poor families led by single mothers. And while on the surface this may sound like a success, Gaddis argues that the way that the program concentrates on children most in need, rather than all children, is hugely detrimental both to the program as a whole and those it serves. Specifically, she argues the National School Lunch Program inadvertently is reinforcing socioeconomic discrimination in a way that shames children and discourages those who can afford another option to opt out of the program. This, in turn, further limits the funds available to the program and makes balancing the cost and quality of food even more difficult for administrators, ultimately creating a vicious downward cycle. So the majority of the kids um, who are participating in the program come from um, poor households and households that um, have um, basically a, a single mother um, in the household. So it kind of makes sense that um, those households um, either are benefiting more financially from receiving free or reduced price lunches or are really benefiting from the time savings um, that you sort of receive when you're not packing lunches every day. But I think it's important to recognize that um, kids qualify for school lunches um, based on their family income in terms of how much they're going to pay. So they'll either um, get a free lunch if their family income is less than 130% of the federal poverty line, or they'll qualify for a reduced price lunch, which costs 40 cents if they're between 130 and 185% of the poverty line. And if they're above that, um, they would pay for their lunch and local school districts are allowed to set their own prices. One of the big issues in school cafeterias, and I think that they've gotten a little bit better over time in terms of overtly identifying um, kids based on their socioeconomic class. I think it used to be more visible, like with kind of tokens and things like that that people would bring if they um, had free lunch. Now a lot of it's done. Um, you know, just through like a PIN number or through some sort of like swiping card so people don't necessarily know. But kids are smart. And once you get through the cafeteria line, you can tell that certain people are eating some food (laughs) and other people are eating other foods. So like the only meal that kids can get for free is the federally subsidized school lunch. And that oftentimes looks different from what kids who are able to just pay out of pocket might be able to purchase on an a la carte line because um, the foods that are um, sold, um, they're called competitive foods. So they're sold in competition with the federally reimbursable school lunch um, are subject to like way fewer nutritional regulations. So um, what the kids are actually eating is going to look pretty different. So, even if they're buying food at the schools, um, kids can kind of tell who has money to spend and who doesn't. And um, similarly, when people are bringing lunch from home, um, I think that that's another kind of indicator of having more flexibility and more income at home that you could use um, in this discretionary manner to spend on school lunch. And because um, in the U.S., class and race are so highly correlated. I think um, this also ends up in a lot of school cafeterias really translating into like a racial kind of segregation in terms of what kids are actually eating as well. 
And I think that um, another thing that has really kind of gotten a lot of attention in the last year in particular is this issue of lunch debt and lunch shaming. So um, for kids who don't qualify for free lunches, so they might um, only be charged 40 cents or it might be you know, $2.50 per lunch, but that can be um, for some families a lot to afford, especially if their financial circumstances change. So there's been this um, issue with um, some children essentially accruing lunch debt, so not paying off the amount that they owe to the schools. And then that kind of puts the schools in a tricky position because they have to run as financially self-sustaining entities. So what that has created is some really awful policies um, where basically shame is used as a tool to try to get parents to pay off their lunch debt. So that could take the form of serving kids a cold cheese sandwich or maybe even taking away their tray and throwing it away in front of everyone else in um, the cafeteria. Or um, most recently, like some of the more egregious (laughs) forms of this lunch shaming that I've seen in the news have been actually um, related to preventing kids who have launched that from participating in regular school activities like um, field trips and school dances. So I think that um, this real like economic sort of sorting and segregation that we have within the National School Lunch Program is a big problem because it really um, not only makes cafeterias a place that can be really exclusionary and subject kids to shame and stigma, but I think it also um, creates this situation in which a lot of upper middle class and middle class families um, end up opting out of the program, and that really, I think, um, reduces the political will to increase the quality of the food and the atmosphere for all kids. The issue of, quote, lunch shaming has generated several high-profile headlines in the past few years and has inspired many individuals and companies including yogurt maker Chobani, to pay off the debt so that children can continue to eat and participate in school activities. But while these donations are laudable, Gaddis argues that they should not be necessary, and that in a sense, they're letting the government off the hook. I don't really think that we should ever be relying on private charity to be paying lunch fees. I think that it's a nice thing like to see in the news that you know people care. Um, but I think that what we really need is a policy solution because I think that um, it's so piecemeal um, in the way that people are actually paying for um, lunch debt now. And I think that it in a way kind of lets the government off the hook when I think what we really need to be moving toward is a model that's more inclusive of everyone. Gaddis explains that the National School Lunch Program evolved away from its initial vision of being a universal program for all children to one of its tested welfare program in the 1970s and 80s, when there was initial push to reduce the cost of welfare programs. The subsequent tightening of the purse strings has created what she calls a paradigm of cheapness that has forced schools to cut corners on food quality and on labor. I think that's where a lot of the ties to like big food companies that are like good at producing food cheaply and externalizing a lot of the costs um, really come into play. Um, and a lot of schools, um, I would say that one of their big issues is that they have to go through um, a competitive bid process. So unless they're really good at very specifically outlining like all the different criteria that they want for a particular food and they're um, like skilled at incorporating what's called like values-based purchasing into their um, 
procurement criteria, they're going to have a hard time um, moving away from just the most standard generic kind of big food products because um, they have to go with like whoever submits like the cheapest bid um, given like, that they're satisfying all the criteria that are laid out. So I think that um, that's one of the things that makes it really difficult um, for schools to switch to doing things like instead of purchasing like the cheapest version of a chicken nugget that meets the nutritional requirements, actually upgrading that to a clean label product that doesn't have the same kinds of industrial additives um, or even moving that to um, an antibiotic-free chicken product. So I think there's a lot of interest in schools in serving um, what are called clean label industrial foods and removing um, what they often refer to as ingredients of concern. So things like high fructose corn syrup and uh, artificial colors, additives, preservatives. Like there's a lot of, I think, emphasis on trying to remove those things from the industrial foods that they're purchasing and a lot of emphasis on trying to um, purchase more food, in particular produce, locally. But it's really hard um, for them to do that under the kinds of financial stress that they're under. So one of the things that I I do want to emphasize that I think a lot of people don't realize is this hidden cost of opting out of the National School Lunch Program and sort of sending kids to school with packed lunches is that it actually makes the financial situation um, that much harder and sort of keeps schools more and more locked into this paradigm of cheap food. As constricting as this may sound, Gaddis notes that schools can break free of this paradigm and improve the quality of the food they serve in part by better educating parents about what's possible if more children participate in the program. Um, There's one school district that I think um, has done a really wonderful job this last school year of talking about this, and that's um, the Austin um, Independent School District in Austin, Texas. And one of the things that I love is that their food service director has been like really awesome at making it very, very clear and easy for people to understand what would be possible um, if the finances were a little bit different. So as an example, um, she's um, kind of gone on the local news and told people, hey, if um, all the kids who are currently not participating in the school lunch program were to eat lunch um, one time per week, we as a school district could actually afford to purchase grass-fed beef for all the cafeterias. And if they were to participate two times a week, we could afford to purchase organic produce. And if they were to participate three times a week, we could actually do organic milk as well. So I think that um, a lot of this like interest in really improving the quality of the food, um, it's so hard for schools to actually make um, a lot of headway in that area if they don't have um, the additional money that they need. So that's where not only increasing the reimbursement rate that schools get like per meal, but also increasing the rate of participation really matters for giving schools um, enough money to cover their sort of basic costs so that they then have more money to devote to the ingredients and to um, labor hours for people to actually be preparing the ingredients and to finish meals. With this in mind, Gaddis calls on parents to enroll their children in the school lunch program, even if only for one or two days a week, because every additional meal sold provides administrators with more resources to collectively improve the quality of the menu they offer. Money is not the only hurdle injuring schools' ability to offer high-quality meals. According to Gaddis, many schools have limited physical capabilities to prep food, which is creating an opportunity for food and beverage manufacturers 
to step in and act as the middleman for prep or to offer cleaner finished products. She knows that many companies, especially smaller startups, already are rising to this challenge based on what she's seen at the School Nutrition Association annual food show in recent years. But she also notes there's still a lot of room for improvement. The first time I went to that conference was in 2012. And then I went back, um, I think, four or five years later. And I just noticed that it was really, really different. So when I went in 2012, um, most of the manufacturers were really just trying to wrap their heads around the changes of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act of 2010, which was going into effect um, at that 2012 school year. So they were really concerned about, well, how do we actually meet the sodium requirements and how do we transition a lot of our products to being um, whole grain rich when we might have been using a lot of refined um, flours? Um, in the past. So that seemed to be kind of where the conversation was. And so I was really pleasantly surprised when I came back to see that a lot more of the manufacturers had really shifted to talking about clean label products and had really um, started to, I think, respond to more of these desires for um, what people often refer to as like real food in schools. So I think that um, there definitely were manufacturers that were doing a good job of responding to this. Um, I did see, though, that there were some newer companies um, at the food show um, that seemed like they kind of had been founded on um, this model of, you know, we're a food manufacturer, but we want to make sure that we're um, manufacturing food that's healthy and that is clean. And um, I think that a lot of those manufacturers maybe um, have found um, kind of a better reception in the school lunch program now because I think there is a real interest in this, but not all schools have the capability to actually cook from scratch. So I think that having the ability to access like high quality industrial foods that don't have so many um, artificial chemicals and preservatives is actually really important for schools. So I think that having um, those smaller companies there is really great. And the larger, more traditional companies, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed is that they often would be working on a particular product or product line. Um, and I think that it's certainly great um, that they are trying to like clean up like certain aspects of their supply chains. But I think my concern is that um, those products tend to cost more. And again, because school districts are often um, making really tough decisions about finances when they're purchasing school lunch items, I think that that leaves us in this position where some of the like hardest hit school districts in terms of their ability to afford um, high quality food are going to have a hard time purchasing those costlier alternatives and they're going to be a little bit left behind. So I think that the big thing that I would like to see is that um, if these um, companies are developing like the technology that they need to try to transition um, their food products to be clean labels that that get rolled out across the board instead of just um, in like premium product product lines, if that makes sense. In addition to rolling out clean label technology across the board, Gaddis encourages manufacturers to look for ways to innovate at the regional level and not just the national one so that they can help schools better tap into local food. You know, I think that there's a lot of need for school districts to actually have some help with um, minimally processed foods. So maybe they want to do more like regional purchasing of 
produce, but they don't have the ability to, for instance, like take whole butternut squash and peel them and like dice them for recipes. So I think having um, more of this kind of in the middle of the supply chain um, kind of help with doing minimal processing is something that I hear a lot of school districts um, talk about as something that would help them be able to use more local product. Um, And I I think one of the things that's kind of a challenge um, is that a lot of the at least more traditional kind of big food companies um, tend to really um, focus on products that they can roll out across the entire K-12 like nationwide market. Um, and that doesn't really allow for this kind of local or regional-based purchasing um, in quite the same way. So I think if they can maybe figure out if there are potentially ways that they could maybe do product development but source ingredients in a more regional kind of way um, so that school districts can um, be supporting more of their local and regional food economies. I think that that's something that um, a fair number of school districts would be really interested in as well. Gaddis also calls on food companies to differentiate themselves from their competition by implementing programs that improve worker welfare in schools and also across their supply chain. While she recognizes this is a potentially daunting call to action, she says that companies that answer it will be rewarded by parents who want to buy products from corporations that, quote, do good. Beyond manufacturers, Gaddis calls on legislators and their constituents to support the Universal School Meals Program Act, which was introduced in October, and if passed, would reduce the stigma and lack of inclusivity in the National School Lunch Program. It also would allow school districts to bolster their food education programs, increase the reimbursement rate, and potentially source more ingredients locally. And finally, Gaddis calls on students in her book to advocate for change in the school lunch program that would address climate change and social justice issues to create a more sustainable food system for the long term. With that, we've reached the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again next week for another installment. And to ensure that you remember, I encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week.